Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is where we left off a few weeks ago. And we're back in the middle of some of the deepest water in all of the Bible. But it is clear water and it's fresh water. And so we're going to dive into it. If you're here for the first time this morning, we have been working through this letter of Romans for the past year and a half or so. And you're, you're joining us on a Sunday where we're, we're right in the middle of one of the deepest truths in all of the Bible. Um, I want to say to you that you, you, uh, you it, it may be a little overwhelming for, for a little bit, but I think, hopefully, you'll be able to understand the context of this passage and everything that, that is going on. And, I, and the burden's on me to help you understand that kind of cold as you jump into this text with us as we've been working through this letter. I'm really glad that you're here today. This morning in particular is just an important truth. For some, it's a controversial truth, truth. But I think it's a, it's a clear truth and something that is beneficial for every Christian to wrestle with and consider. So let me do this. Let me read verses 6 through 18 of Romans chapter 9. And we're going to zero in. If you remember, we looked at verses 6 through 9 last week. And we're going to zero in on verses 10 through 13. But let me, let me give you a little bit more context. Let me read through 18. I'm going to start in verse 6 and then we'll pray. And we'll do a little catching up and summary and then dive into the text this morning. Paul is writing and he says, And remember the issue that he is burdened about. The point that he has been making in the first eight chapters of Romans is that God saves sinners who cannot save themselves by his grace and mercy through Jesus' sacrificial death through his life, which is perfect, then laid down on the cross to absorb the wrath of God, and then rise again in victory, and all those that will trust in Jesus are saved, they're justified, and God guarantees that he will not lose them, nothing will separate them from the love of God, and that he will bring them safely home, and they will live with him forever. That's The gospel, that's Paul's argument in the first eight chapters of Romans. But in Romans chapter 9, Paul is anticipating the objection that many of his listeners would have that, well, if God has, so he's speaking to first century Roman Christians, and he's anticipating that they may be looking back at the Old Testament and saying, well, if God has promised to bring me safely home, if he saved me, how can he really be trusted because his, his people in the Old Testament, the Jews, the vast majority of them seem to have rejected God and the promise that he gave to him seems like it has failed because it didn't produce the salvation that God promised them. So can I trust in God's promises? And Paul's answer to that is Romans 9. And he's saying, no, God can be trusted. And his answer is what we've been getting into these last couple weeks that we'll elaborate on this morning. So verse 6, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, listen to these verses carefully, verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. All right, well, we need to pray before we, we unpack this. So pray with me, and pray for me, please. Let's, let's do that. Lord, uh, we thank you for your holy word. It's infallible, meaning it's completely unable to speak anything but truth. It's completely true. It's inerrant. It's without error. Every jot and tittle is true. It's divinely inspired. It means it's breathed out by you. You have superintended people to write down exactly what you intended them to write down. You used their personalities and their context and their setting to deliver to your people exactly what you intended. And it is authoritative, meaning that it rises above any human notion of fairness or justice. It is something we must submit ourselves under rather than stand over it in judgment. May we remember that about your word this morning, and may we thank you for it. I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, that by your sovereign grace, you would have mercy on many, and that you would open their eyes to the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ and what he has done to reconcile people who are completely unable to do anything about their sinful state to you. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who are already trusting in Jesus that you would comfort us, that you would convict us, that you would exhort us, that you would transform us and make us more like Christ, that you would deepen our confidence in your promise to us that you will bring us safely home, that the chain of your mercy towards your people is unbreakable. And I pray that you do this for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name, amen. So verses 6 through 9, just a quick summary of where we were a couple weeks ago. The dilemma is, as I alluded to before I read the scripture and prayed, is that God has promised to make a people and to bring them safely home. But the, the issue is, the dilemma is, is that most of ethnic Israel, most descendants, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's people in the Old Testament have rejected Christ. So the question, the dilemma is, can God be trusted? More personally, are the promises of Romans 8, this mountain peak of the Bible that we spent so much time in before the summer, are the promises of Romans 8 about individual salvation something that we can believe in? Because if God is, is, is unreliable in the Old Testament, how can we say that he's reliable now? And Paul's answer in Romans 6 through 13 and in the first part of it that we looked at last week is that God's word has not failed. And the reason it's not failed is because he is distinguishing that all who have descended physically from Israel, in other words, those who are the ethnic children of Israel, are not necessarily true Israel. So he's introducing this notion that there is a physical Israel physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there is spiritual Israel, true Israel. And this is people who believe they're children of the promise. In fact, 
If you remember at the end of Romans 2, Paul says that all of those who, a true Jew, is not necessarily an ethnic Jewish person, but somebody who has been circumcised in their heart. And so now, what it means to be truly Jewish is to believe in Jesus, who alone is the one true obedient Israelite and Jew who is the inheritor of all of the blessings of God because he alone is the one who has kept the covenant and has gone before God for his people. And now all of those who are in Christ receive all of the promises of salvation that God had towards his people. And so now Jesus is the one true Jew and all those that are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are spiritual Jews. And so Paul is making the point that God has not failed in forming a people, but the forming of his people never came through ethnic descendants. Is that a word? You know what I'm talking about. But it comes through faith in Christ Spiritual faith, not ethnic identity. That's his point in verses 6 through 9. And he uses the example of these two children of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael is this one son. Remember, Isaac and his wife Sarah were promised a child of promise from God. But they were getting up there in years. In fact, Sarah was in her 90s and Abe was 100. And so how are these two people who are literally dried up, Sarah being barren, not being able to bear a child. How will she bring a child? And so they decide to help God out and concoct their own little scheme and have Abraham sleep with Sarah's handmaiden, her mistress named Hagar, and to produce a child that way that will be God's heir. Because surely, even though God promised this to us, it doesn't seem to be working out as God planned, so we need to help God out. And God said, no, that's not the way it goes. I am able to do exactly what I said I'm going to do. And in fact, maybe Abe, and I'm summarizing here, this isn't exactly what the Bible says, but I think what I'm about to say is true, is that God is saying, I'm going to let you dry up, Abraham, and I'm going to cause you to be married to a woman who is physically barren, and I'm going to do all of that to bring about and give you a child to show you that it is impossible for man to bring about my promise. No, don't get too excited. We're not even into the text this morning. I'm just summarizing. And so salvation, who becomes God's people, is not a matter of human ingenuity or contriving, but by God, who, this is what it says in Romans 4, 17, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So God brings salvation. He brings the fulfillment of his promise, not by cooperating with individuals, but by doing a miracle and bringing, bring, making a 90-year-old and a 100-year-old man have a baby when it is impossible. And that's a picture of how salvation works. Now, in verses 10 through 13, lest we didn't get that, he's going to whittle it down to even a finer point. And he's going to say, okay... Now, you might have thought that there's these two brothers, but they had two different mothers. And so Israel might be thinking, national Israel might be thinking, well, yeah, but, you know, Ishmael, he wasn't of the true line. And so, and, and so you know, we have this kind of divine privilege over other peoples. And so surely God is sort of, you know, electing us because of something good in us because we actually come. And now Paul is going to take it one step further. And he's going he's to take two twins that have the same parents. And he's going to say, even between these two people who on human level, everything else is the same, even then, man can't produce salvation. God must do it. So let's read verses 10, 11, and 12 again, and then we'll work through it. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, she, she is the wife of Isaac, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, listen to verse 11. Verse 11 is so key. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Now, Paul is quoting what God told Rebekah when the 
twins were still in her womb, that the older will serve the younger, which would have been against the natural order. As it is written, verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So if there was any doubt that maybe there could be some distinction or merit or difference between brothers, Paul goes one step further. Unlike Isaac and Ishmael, who had different mothers, these two boys had the same two parents and are in fact twins and came about by the same act of conception which created them both. Therefore, Paul's point that he's going to make here is that neither has a claim on the divine promise for any reason. And let's look at verse 11, which is the key to, I think, understanding all of Romans 9. Paul says, Though they were not yet born, speaking of the two twins in the womb, Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So that phrase there, I think that phrase, God's purpose of election, is really the final and ultimate answer to how Israel, true Israel, becomes true Israel. You see, the point that Paul is making, he's saying that God's word, let's remember the context of Romans chapter 9. He's saying that God's word has not failed, even though most of the ethnic descendants of Israel have rejected him, which would make us think that, oh, God has failed in producing a people. Paul is saying, no, God has produced a people. It's actually true Israel, spiritual Israel. And how does spiritual Israel, how does that group of people become created? How do they come into existence? Not by human intervention, but by God's choosing. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 11. So God has not failed because of his choosing, because of his, his phrase, Paul's phrase, his purpose of election. God has brought about a people through his decision. That's what Paul is saying. Now what is God's decision based upon? Let's look at that. He says, that this decision that God has made to bring about a people, a true people, a spiritual people, not because of human intervention or, or, or ancestry, but because of his grace, what is he basing that choice on? And it's not, notice at the beginning of verse 11, not because of anything good that the human does. That's why God chooses two twins that are created by the same two parents, the same act of conception, and before they were even born, God is saying before they've done anything good or bad, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So what is the basis of God choosing Jacob over Esau? Not because of anything good in Jacob or Esau, not because God looks down the portals of time and knows that Jacob is going to be a better man than Esau or that Jacob is going to have faith, but the basis of God's choice of Jacob over Esau is because, look at the end of verse 11, because of him who calls. So what, what the basis, what the foundation, what the reason what the thing that brings about God's election is the call of God. Friends, think about this. Listen to this. Think deeply about this. God's calling, and we're going to talk about what calling is. God's calling brings about his purpose. God's call creates his people. I think that's what Paul is saying in verse 11. So the reason... Jacob was chosen over Esau, and I think this is an example of why anybody becomes a Christian, is not because of anything they have done, but because of God's calling. And we need to think about the idea of calling. The Bible, this is where we have to read discerning and read wisely and read slowly. In the New Testament, the Bible speaks often of God calling. And we need to distinguish between the types of call that we see in the New Testament. There is a kind of general call. God calls his people. He commissions the church to go out into all the world 
and to preach the gospel. And so in one sense, God's calling everybody everywhere all the time to believe we are to give the gospel away. But underneath that is God's sovereign work by where he is effectively, without a doubt, bringing about exactly what he desires because God is bound not by anything in the person. God is not reacting to any precondition in Jacob or Esau before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. He elected one and not the other. Why? Because of his calling. And what does that mean? It means that God's call when he creates his people is effective. God's call, God's salvation, the way God makes his people is not up for doubt. It is effective. Let me show this to you from scripture. In fact, from Jesus's, from Jesus's words in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, a very important scripture for us to consider. John chapter 6, and I'll be a little bit in John 10 as well. Jesus says this in John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Listen to verse 37. Listen to the certainty of Jesus' words. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, verse 37, that will make you dance. That's a rock-solid promise from Jesus. That you don't do it, I do it. If you're mine, I'm going to come get you. And you're going to respond. And I ain't going to lose none, y'all. That's what Jesus is saying there. He goes on, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Have you ever just tried to carry too much, and you drop some stuff, like a big you know, pile of stuff, and you, you drop a few things? Jesus <laughs> nothing slips out of his hands. He accomplishes the mission. You, you young soldiers, Jesus' paragraph three in his op order of execution is completely done perfectly. You civilians, ask later. Jesus completely accomplishes his mission. Jesus is not up in heaven with a four-leaf clover saying, he loves me, he loves me not, hoping that he ends on the right stroke. Jesus will bring to himself all that the Father has given him, and he will lose nothing. Look at verse 41 of John 6. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said to him, they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. All. His call when he saves a person is always effective. I think that's what this text is saying. Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, a little bit. A little bit more of this. John chapter 10, verse, verse 22. Jesus is, this beautiful chapter of John 10 and the Good Shepherd, abundant life. Listen to, listen to this interaction between these people and Jesus. John 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life 
and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you see the definitiveness of what Jesus is saying there? Regardless of where you fall on some theological spectrum, or even if this is the first time that you've encountered some of these scriptures that are, are quite challenging to our notions of, you know, kind of human autonomy, there is clearly a certainty to what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that I will do it. I will accomplish all of the mission. My sheep hear my voice and they will come to me. And then, then just look, just in the context of what we've been studying here in Romans, look at the certainty the effectiveness of the call of God in this effectual sense, even just one chapter over in Romans chapter 8. So go back to Romans and look at Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, where he's talking about this idea of God's choosing and God's predestining and God's electing. And he says in verse 30 of Romans 8, and those, particular group of people, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So remember, what we're, what we're thinking about here is the effectiveness of the calling that brings about the election of true Israel. And so, Yes, in one sense, there's a kind of general gospel call that God commands the church to give to all people everywhere. We, we preach the gospel. But when, when God saves a person, he makes that general call effective. And so look at verse 30 again. So it's not in doubt. Those whom he predestined, those whom he determined to save in eternity past, how did he do it? He also called them. He brought, and what does it mean by called? He brings the knowledge of the gospel to bear on their hearts. He wakes them up so that they can believe in Jesus. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. He, that's the call. The call isn't just, hey, you. The call is opening somebody's ears, giving them a new heart so that they now can see and trust in Jesus. And those whom he called... He also justified. So you see there that this call that he's speaking about in Romans 8 verse 30 is not a kind of general up in the air call. It is a call that is always effective because everybody that he called is also justified. Every single one of them, not one more, not one less. Do you see that? There's a definitive to that, to that, definitiveness to that. All that are called are justified and all that are justified are also glorified, which, by the way, is the greatest truth in the Bible. God will bring you all the way home. Think about that, Christian. Think about that young man who's struggling with sin right now. If you are a believer in Jesus, God speaks of the finality of the process of your sanctification in past tense, and he says that you are already glorified. So put that in your feeble knees and lean forward into fighting your sin with the certainty of a God who will bring all of his children all the way home and fight with that and stop being such a wimpy millennial who's always whining about stuff. So do you see, do you see, this is important, verse 11, God's call brings about what he purposed in eternity to create a true people. That's how God saves. So God's word has not failed. It has not fallen to the ground. A very respected New Testament commentator, his name is Douglas Moo, that's his name, Moo, says this, if God's plan depended on the vagaries of sinful human beings for its continuance, then indeed God's word would have fallen to the ground long ago. 
But God's purpose in history is fulfilled because he himself elects people to be part of that purpose. God's in control of human history. God's in control of your salvation. Now, there's much more. Right now, many of you are, it was firing away in your mind are objections to the utter and free sovereignty of God that we see in this text. And we're going to answer those objections as we continue. In fact, Paul is going to answer those objections as we continue through Romans 9. But let, let's just, for, for this Sunday, let's just consider this aspect of calling. That, that God has not failed because he brings about exactly what he intends to bring about, even down to the point of the salvation of individual people. God is not reacting to anything. So you may be thinking, well then, what is the relationship of faith to salvation? Because we went through Romans chapter 4, where we saw how only those who have faith in Jesus are justified, and so clearly the Bible's full of verses that says that you must have faith in order to be saved, and that is very true. We don't want to budge on that at all, but let's think deeply about it. Think, think about this now. Let's, let's think logically about what Paul is saying. Let's, let's mesh all of his thought in Romans. Listen to this. We are not elected or saved or chosen or predestined because we have faith. We have faith because we have been chosen, elected, and predestined. Do you see that? You, let, me put it, let me put it in, in another way. You have faith because you've been born again. You aren't born again because you have faith. Those, those two things certainly go together. They're inseparable, but one is a consequence of the other. This is the way Augustine, the early church father, said. He said, Lord, and this became a controversial phrase. He said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. And that touched off a, a theological controversy in the early church. And I think Augustine was right. And he's, he's, he's seeing that God commands what he wills, but in order for us to obey the command that God wills, which is to have faith in Jesus, to repent and believe, God must give it to us. He must grant what he commands. So in other words, the call of God creates what it commands. The call of God creates what it commands. It doesn't cooperate with what is already there. Because nothing is not, is not even there. And that's why he uses these two twins in the womb before they had done anything good or bad, before they had the opportunity to have faith or not have faith, not because of anything good in them, not because of any condition that existed prior in them, but simply because of his grace, God calls and he creates. I, I use this, this, this picture often and I, I think it's true and helpful. I think this is what is going on in the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11, where Lazarus is dead. He's Jesus' friend, Mary and Martha, his sister, Lazarus' sisters, have implored Jesus to come while Lazarus was still sick so that he might heal him. And Jesus seems to intentionally take his own sweet time, and in the meantime, Lazarus, in fact, dies. And the Bible wants to emphasize for us that Lazarus isn't just in some sort of coma, but that he's actually dead when it tells us that he stinks, meaning his flesh is decomposing, lest we mistake the state of Lazarus. And Jesus comes to eventually the tomb of Lazarus, and he says to Lazarus, Lazarus, get up. And I think that's an example of the effective call of the gospel. I think, that's an I think it's a kind of picture of how anybody that comes to faith in Jesus, whether you are four years old or whether you are 50 years old, how anybody comes to faith in Jesus. We are born dead in our sins. Dead people, we are all spiritually like Lazarus. We can't agree with God. 
We can't respond to God. We are completely unable. And when God saves a person, he doesn't look at a person who has good intentions, but he comes to a dead heart and he calls them. He creates what he commands. And he says to Lazarus, get up. And he gives the very call of God, the words of life of Christ, grant, it, it gives the ability, it gives the gift of faith, whereby Lazarus is resuscitated, he's resurrected, and now because he's alive, his ears are opened, and his heart can believe, and he can respond to Jesus. But it's not that a dead heart heard Jesus and then became alive, it's that Jesus made him alive, and that newly alivened heart and opened ears responded to Jesus and got up. So the call of God, the preaching of the gospel, the sharing, and we're going to talk about that, creates what, he, what it commands. And I think that's how any of us that have heard and heeded the call to repent and believe in Jesus have come to him. Friends, is this hard? Yes. Does this humble humanity? Yes. But consider the alternative. That God is responding to anything in the creature. That, I don't think that's feasible with the biblical witness. And I don't think we can mesh that with verse 11. So let's keep going in verse 12. She was told, Rebecca, she was told, the older will serve the younger. That's quoting the text in Genesis where when Jacob and Esau were still in their mother's womb, she was told, she was given a kind of hint of how God was going to intervene here and do his work. He was going to sovereignly elect Jacob over Esau. I think this is a picture of divine prerogative, not natural order. Salvation is God's making of a people to inherit his promises. And it is not a part of a natural progression God has not set up a system that works itself out through human generations. Salvation is supernatural. It is God's wisdom that confounds the natural order of things. Now, let me pause here and say, and we're going to get into this as we continue through Romans, clearly God uses means. He uses means to bring about his eternal plan. So yes, God uses the means of you being born into a Christian family, you having good parents, you putting yourself in situations that, that the gospel is preached that he uses to awaken you. But all of that is part of God's drawing you by his Holy Spirit and his mercy by which he brings about in time the, the salvation of all those that he has determined to save in eternity past. So, so don't look at this truth and think of it so severely as if God just kind of decides to drop down into earth and break into time and just conks people over the head and says, you, 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 not you. No, God works through means to bring about, to call, to awaken his people that he saves. And then in verse 13, he says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I Hated. Now this is, this is a tough verse. What does it mean that God hated Esau? And, and what, what, what is Paul getting at? Well, Paul in this text is, is quoting an Old Testament text in Malachi that we'll read in just a second from Malachi chapter 1. And he is telling the Roman audience that he's speaking to, he's alluding to this picture that he speaks to Israel in the Old Testament. So what does it mean that God has hated Esau? I don't think, well, there's much that we could say about this, which would be its own sermon. But let me offer this thought, that this idea that God hated Esau is, is a kind of natural way of, of Hebrew thought to, to, to talk about preference. So for example, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me 
and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is not telling you to hate your mama. What he's saying is, in contrast, it's a kind of antithesis. In contrast, nothing can come before me. And that's a kind of Hebrew way of God saying that he has chosen Jacob. There's these stark realities. He's chosen Jacob, and he's not chosen Esau. That's what I think he's saying there when he says that God has hated Esau. And where does that, that phrase, God has hated Esau, come from? Well, he's quoting Malachi chapter 1. So let me read Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say... How have you loved us? So what's going on at the beginning of Malachi is Israel is complaining to God about whether or not he's really being good to them. And God's defending, really, his love for them. And he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, this is God speaking for Israel, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom, verse 4, and Edom is the nation that comes from Esau, so it's the same thing there. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of the host says that they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And so, Paul, so, so the Lord in Malachi is wanting to encourage Israel and just saying, hey, I love you. I love you. I've chosen you and not these people, which brings about the possible objection. Hang with me here. Hang with me. The objection is, okay, okay, Brad, I see what you're saying. But so if God is talking about nations in Malachi, these nations that come from, this nation that comes from Jacob and this nation that comes from Esau, and God has chosen one nation that comes from Jacob and not the other, then what God is talking about, what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 9, isn't individual salvation, but he's talking about kind of a corporate salvation. So, so whoo, man, we thought this was going to be hard, but God, we, God let himself off the hook there because he's talking about nations and not individuals, right? Wrong. I don't think that's the right interpretation of Romans 9. Why? Well, for a couple reasons. One, back to Romans chapter 9, which we'll study next week, is that right after this difficult text about how God elects one and not the other, one individual and not the other, in verse 14, he anticipates the objection of unfairness. In verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And he goes on to say he will have mercy on whomever individual that he wills. And he will harden whomever individual that he wills. So if, if in Romans chapter 9 verse 11, Paul is speaking merely about the election, sort of the general election of a group of people, but all the individuals in there still have their own individual sort of self-determining destiny-making ability then there wouldn't be the need for him to respond to that objection in verse 14. Do you see that? It would take the teeth out of what Romans 9 is saying. I know this is deep water, but I want you to see this. So, so Paul is saying there that I think that the salvation is of individuals. And then, let's just look at other numerous texts in the New Testament that I think clearly speak about God's sovereignty in the individual salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3 through 6, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, speaking to New Testament Christians, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So I think what's in view there is individual individuals who are called by God. And how are they called by God? Ephesians 1 is really important. Through Jesus Christ. So it's not that God just conks you over the head and makes you a Christian. He awakens your dead heart and he enables that dead heart 
to behold what Jesus has done. This is the gospel, friends. Jesus, what he has done to live a perfect life in your stead, to lay down his life on the cross, to bear the wrath of God, to absorb it, to satisfy it, to exonerate you, to justify you, to free you from sin's tyranny as we have sung, and then to rise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, and, and tell you that he will bring you safely home. So, so the calling of God, the election of God, is not just a whack on the head by where all of a sudden you wake up someday and you say, oh my gosh, I'm a Christian, now I've got to start doing these things. It awakens you where you were unable, now you are enabled to behold Jesus, believe in Jesus, and be saved by faith in Christ through the mechanism and the means of faith which God gives you to behold and bring about the salvation that he's given you in eternity past. One more text just to hammer home this point that I think Romans 9 is speaking about individual salvation. Acts 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay. Let's shake it out. Let's pause and let's breathe, right? This is deep. I realize that. But I, I, I just, it's in the Bible. God has given it to us. It's for our good. And I don't want to brush over it and just give you three points on how to have a better Tuesday. I would be an unfaithful shepherd if I tickled your ears. Right? And so, if you are being stretched and if this is a little harder for you, thank God. I mean, we, we, we understand rigor in every other area of life. Come on. Some of you are so excited about football season starting, and we know that any team that competes to win the prize works their tail off to get ready for the season. But yet when we approach a difficult truth in Scripture, we say, oh, I can't understand it. Come, come on. Let's not be wimpy, abiblical Christians. It doesn't mean that you agree with everything I said, but let's wrestle with it and let's not push away from the table when we bite into something that you got to chew on for a while. God gave you teeth. Use them. Stop sucking from a straw. This is good for us to wrestle with it. Listen to what John Piper says about this text. He says, if this stretches your mind to the breaking point, better that your minds be broken than that the scriptures be broken. And even better yet would be to let your mind and heart be enlarged rather than broken so that they can contain all that the scriptures teach. <laughs> Amen. And let's not feel like we have to have tidy little boxes that we contain God in. Let's let some things stand as they are written and let's let it produce awe in us. So as I end this three, why is seeing this so important? Why do we need to wrestle with this truth? Why am I jealous for you to wrestle with this, even if you don't necessarily come to the conclusion that I have come to in this text? Why? Because I want you, I want you, I want you to consider these three things, these, these applications of this truth. I want to help produce these things in me and in us as a church. First, is I think wrestling with this truth will produce humility in salvation. And I think one thing that the American church needs is humility. We are so cute. We love our filters and our stuff and our shiny things and our aesthetic. We love being cool and hip. And that cuts against our worship. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Starting in verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble, noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, not because of your cuteness, not because of anything but his grace, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are a me generation, man. Just, just, I've already offended you, so let me just go all the way in. Just look at social media and how many pictures we take of ourselves doing ordinary dumb things. And we think that the world needs to know about it. That produces in us a kind of self-idolizing, doesn't it? And I'm guilty of it too. This is me working out my personal best on the power clean. Everybody needs to know that I had kale for breakfast and I'm healthier than all you poor snobs out there. And friends, if you don't think that affects the way you view yourself in the universe, you're, you're mistaken. This is what John Stott says about this truth and how it should produce humility in us. Election, John Stott was a British, uh, English commentator and pastor in the 1900s, a very faithful brother, passed away 10 or 15 years ago, I think. He says, election is an indispensable foundation of Christian worship in time and eternity. It is the essence of worship to say, by the way, this is what J.D. read for us in Psalm 115 at the beginning, it is the essence of Christian worship to say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory if we were responsible for our own salvation, either in whole or even in part, we would be justified in singing our own praises and blowing our own trumpet in heaven. But such a thing is inconceivable. God's redeemed people will spend eternity worshiping him, humbling themselves before him in grateful adoration, ascribing their salvation to him and to the Lamb, and acknowledging that he alone is worthy to receive all praise, honor, and glory. Why? Because our salvation is due entirely to his grace, will, initiative, wisdom, and power. What's, it, what's on the line here is, is our worship of God, our right worship of God, realizing that it is God who saves us and not ourselves. And we, we need a healthy dose of humility and gratefulness in, in the American church, I think. We are so impressed with ourselves. Another thing it should produce in us is hope in evangelism. And you may think this is contrary to what I've just said, but you know what? We're going to get in a few weeks to Romans chapter 10, which is right after Romans chapter 9, where it says, it says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. <laughs> so, friends, do you see the hope in this? When you examine it, when you stare at it closely, you realize now, because salvation is God's work and not the human's work of cooperating with God, if we stare at it long enough, that should actually give us great hope because now even the worst of sinners, if there is such a thing, is a candidate for God's grace. If you're not saved by anything that you have done, you're not taking yourself out of a candidacy of God's grace by anything that you have. So God can save anybody. God's not looking for any prior condition in a person. God's not bound by anything that seems to be sort of a good candidate. And we need to stop saying this about our unsaved friends. Oh, if God would just save that person, he could use all of their gifts because they've got a great personality. As if God needs people on his team. Let's stop saying that. When we say that, we think that the human actually brings something to the table. Friends, this, if we stare at it long enough, actually gives us great hope because God, who is rich in mercy, can save to the uttermost. And if you struggle with this truth, we have a book in the, worship center, in the resource center written by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And it's a short little book that will show you that if you stare at this truth long enough, you realize actually that it will bring evangelistic hope to you. Because as you look at your unsaved friends or your unsaved child, you know that your hope is not in anything that might be in them, but in a God who is rich in mercy. And I would rather trust in God who is rich in mercy than anything that might or might not be in my person that I love. Ephesians 2 verse 4 and 5 says, But God 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So the same way God saved you, dear friend, is the same way that he can save your friend that is as far away from God as you can imagine because you are just as dead as they are. And God made you alive. And finally, this should produce in us confidence in God. If you're a believer in Jesus, this should produce in you confidence in God. Let me back up. Let me go back to hope and evangelism and let me speak to anybody in this room who might be wondering, you might be thinking, Brad, you don't know me. You don't know me. I'm so wicked, man. I'm, 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 I'm too far gone. I'm too far gone. And I don't think I could ever be amongst God's elect. I'm too far gone. <laughs> dear, dear friend, Consider the value judgment that you are making when you think that way. You may be staring at this text and you may even have come from a Christian background and you may actually believe that God is who he says he is and that Jesus is truly the son of God and has lived a perfect life and bore God's wrath on the cross and rose again. You may believe all those things, but you may be making this value determination that you, because of your sin, are unsavable. And I want you to consider what you're doing. You're saying that the creator of the universe, who created everything out of nothing, and can do, as we read in Psalm 115, whatever he pleases, that powerful God that could raise his son from the grave, speak life into existence, can do everything, but you, you, in, in your infinite power and in your sin, have the power to negate the effective call of God. And you may be thinking, you know, God, may be, God can't call me because I'm too far gone. Oh, come on, friend. Come on. Are you hearing these words right now? Do not harden your heart. Turn from your sin. Wake up. Breathe. Trust in Jesus. Your sin is not more powerful than God's rich mercy. Don't make that value assessment. That is the height of idolatry. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Tell somebody in this room right now that that's the way you came in thinking. Don't leave this room. Don't run off. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Don't, right now. Eternity hangs in the balance for you. For you. He's calling you. Trust, get up, believe. Christ is more powerful than your sin. He's more powerful than what you did last night. He is. Believe in him. And this should produce in us confidence. And the confidence that I'm speaking about is not just some temporal comfort. Not that God will make all of my little hopes and dreams in these 90 years come to pass. But it's the confidence that comes at the end of Romans 9, right? It's confidence that says that what shall separate me from the love of God shall tribulation or sword or nakedness. No, nothing shall separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So whatever, whatever the future holds for me, whether it's another 50 years of fruitfulness and walking with God or whether it is for my life to have an untimely ending as far as human standards are and to be snuffed out by a cancer cell or a car accident or some other tragedy, or the bullet of a terrorist in Afghanistan, whatever it is, God will bring all of his people safely home and he saves you not merely for 90 years of earthly comfort, but for eternity. That's what your life is about. That's what my life is about. And this 
text is to produce in his people unshakable confidence in a God who has more for us than just these 90 years, but has brought about an unbreakable chain of his sovereign grace whereby he will bring his people safely home and they will live with him forever. That's, that's what life is about. And I need to hear that again. And I think you do too. Let's pray. Father, I'm sure I've said some things that probably weren't exactly the best way to say them. And I'm sure in my desire to be clear and love these people, maybe sometimes my tone hasn't been as pastoral as it should have been. But God, take all that weakness on my part and use it for your will. I pray for my friends in this room who came in not knowing Jesus and they're just, right now they feel like they've just drank from a fire hose. I pray that you'd give them grace and help them to just see the, the richness and the freeness of your grace. You, you save sinners. That's the way you bring about your people. You save guilty sinners like us and you can do it for them. May they turn from trusting in themselves and may they put their hope in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And for my friends in this room that are Christians, God, would you wean us from ourselves? We're, we're, so, we're so impressed with ourselves. I'm so impressed with myself. I'm, I'm such an idolater. I confess that. My, my idol is not silver or gold or my, my, my biggest idol is myself. Lord, would you crush that idol? Would you wean me from it? And would you lift up my eyes so that I can see you and worship you more rightly and have more joy, true joy, eternal joy? And would you do that for my friends as well? Now as we respond to you in worship and repentance and faith, meet with us, I pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.